At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hi, this is Steve. One of the hallmarks of great directors is their ability to change genres while still maintaining a vision that is uniquely their own. When last we discussed Stanley Kubrick, it was for Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Strangelove is a fast-paced, dialogue-heavy black comedy filled with human foibles. The movie he releases five years later is slow, thoughtful, methodical, abstract, and challenging. And yet, despite their differences, and it's hard to think of two more different films, both movies are instantly recognizable as the work of Stanley Kubrick. His attention to detail, masterful camera work, and incomparable design could not possibly be mistaken for any other filmmaker. 2001 A Space Odyssey was released 50 years ago, and yet it still remains one of the most stunning, thought-provoking, and influential science fiction movies ever made. When John and I decided that we were going to tackle this, for lack of a better word, monolith, we knew we were going to need some very special help, and who better than one of our all-time favorite guests, science fiction superfan Scott Mance. This might have been our longest conversation ever, and 2001 offers plenty to dig into. If you haven't seen this masterpiece, I highly recommend picking up a copy or renting it through our website, cinephiles.net. So, that's part one of our journey into Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey with special guest Scott Mance, this Friday on The Cinephiles. Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, occasional actor, uh, but host, writer, and producer of numerous things over at Collider and other places. And uh, I can't tell you how much I'm, A, looking forward to this episode because we've got a great returning guest, but also... I had a bit of a rough day, and so today, so talking about this film with you two is just going to make, I know it's going to make my day, it's going to make me go to sleep very, very happy tonight. And without further ado, I would like to welcome back to the Cinephiles one of our favorite guests of all time, one of the most enthusiastic lovers of film I know, Scott Mance. Welcome back yeah. to the Cinephiles. Thank you so much, my friends, my friends. It's so great to be <laughs> back. I swear, 
doing cinephiles, talking movies with you is absolutely a highlight. I mean, our shows go on for like two and a half hours. Oh, yeah. And I feel like it flies by. And uh, for everyone listening, I am Scott Movie Mance, and I am an unemployed film critic. (laughs) uh, It is great to be working right now with you guys. Thank you, man. Talking about this very special movie. And everybody should strap in because this might be a long one. You know when Scott comes on, but it's going to be a long one full of a lot of information. So I'm looking forward. And energy. energy. Absolutely. Well, and it's funny. I was thinking about, like, uh, is this going to be a long one? Because on the one hand, it's a two and a half hour long movie. It is. On the other hand, it is probably the slowest paced movie we've ever done. So yeah. there's, there's, it's not like there's endless dialogue. Well, and, large gaps and no dialogue. Yeah. yeah. So, so in that sense, it's going to be uh, faster. In another sense, it is one of the deepest and most ambiguous movies we've ever, probably the most ambiguous movie yeah. we've ever done. And of course, we have Scott Mance here. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you're talking about a movie that's two and a half hours. Yeah. But you were talking about a movie, like you said, sparse dialogue. There is only 40 minutes of dialogue in this movie and no dialogue for the first 25 minutes of yes. the film. Well, and I would say a lot of those 40 minutes are almost incidental. Like it's stuff that's mm. not even, you know, the conversation with the daughter. There's all this stuff yeah. that has nothing to do with it's the just... plot of the film. Yeah. What movie are we talking about? By the, the movie way? we're talking about <laughs> is 2001, A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, 1968. This movie is 50 years old. Yeah. 50 years old and watching it on the big screen, which you can do for a limited time because it was re-released in 70 millimeter yeah. to coincide for this landmark. 50th anniversary, supervised by its biggest fan, none other than Christopher Nolan. Oh, wow. Oh, that's right. Christopher Nolan loves Kubrick. 2001 A Space Odyssey is his favorite movie of all time. And that actually see, explains a lot. That explains but, a lot, mm-hmm. especially when you see Interstellar. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I there love. is a Stargate scene, a wormhole yeah. scene, a black hole, whatever you want to call it. But uh, so he supervised this restored version, supervised the prints, uh, the 70 millimeter prints. And uh, it did very, very well in its first weekend and limited release on four screens. It made uh, $200,000, wow. which is $50,000 per theater, which is a bigger per theater average than Deadpool 2. Wow. Wow. I think that Deadpool 2 uh, double feature with 2001 A Space Odyssey. I think that would go, <laughs> that would go really, really well. Um, do, you, do you start with 2001? Do you start with Deadpool 2? Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like if you're if you're if you got the adrenaline going after Deadpool 2, I mean, oh, yeah, you can make it. Yeah, the cool that. down is yeah, 2001 Space Odyssey. It is a cool down. Do you, Scott, do you remember how you first came to the film? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question, Steve. <laughs> I have a great story about oh, my great. introduction to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now, two things happened in 1968. 2001 A Space Odyssey came Three out. Three things happened. And Scott Mance was born. Hello. And Steve Morris. That's, is that oh. right? What's yeah. your birthday? We, we were very close. I'm October 14th. And I'm November 21st. Yeah, because we talked about this at Wrath of Khan when we started to talk about Star Trek. So nice. I remembered we were born very close to each other. So obviously, we were both too young to see it. We were all too yes. young to see it when it first came out. Right. Uh, but I saw the movie for the first time on the big screen in May of 1980. Now, Ooh. what very important, special, famous science fiction sequel came out in May of 1980. It's got to be Empire. That is correct. Oh. The Empire Strikes Back. Nice. So so I saw The Empire Strikes Back the weekend it opened, and it was at the uh, 
the, the Chamonix Mall, the premier theater, it was a uh, a two-screen movie theater. You know, now they have 14 screens everywhere. Right. But it was just a two-screen theater. So I saw The Empire Strikes Back there. And then about a week later, for some reason, I don't know why, the theater did a, uh, a special uh, limited uh, opportunity to see 2001. And, you know, being the sci-fi geek that I was and still very much am, I was asked my dad if we could go see it. So my dad says... I don't think you're going to like it. Oh. And I was 11 years old, and I said, I will be the judge of that. <laughs> so he 11. took me to the film. So not only did I not like it, not only did I not understand, not only was I bored to tears, but like you pointed out, there are long moments where nothing really happens. Nobody says anything. There is such dead silence at some points that I could hear from the theater next door the laser blasts and, <laughs> and Chewbacca, you know. And at a couple of times, I got up to go to the bathroom, quote unquote, and I went in to see where they were with the Empire Strikes Back. Uh, it wasn't until, I would say, until high school and, uh, you know, VCRs that I was able to really digest. 2001 in a proper mindset, obviously not the proper way to see the movie, but that's when I started to get intrigued by it. And it took really a couple of decades of watching the movie over and over again, as often as I could on the big screen before I could wrap my head around the film, which is what makes this episode of Cinephiles so special because I have it. I got it down. Oh, I can't wait because I don't think I do. John, do you remember when you first saw it? Yeah, um, I it was here in Los Angeles for the first time uh, when I had moved here in 2000, 2001, and, ironically, and it was on uh, TCM, I think. And I remember, because I had seen bits, I'd heard the music, uh, people had told me about it, but people, already, people, people had said it is essentially a monolith. It's something to tackle, for lack of a better reference. Um, and so I waited till I was like mentally ready to watch it, you know? And I sat down one night, 10 o'clock at night, dark, lights out, uh, I was living with Edgar at the time, uh, and I just sat and watched this on a 46-inch Sony television off TCM, and I was mesmerized. You were the first time you saw it. Yeah, because I, was, I think I was old enough to understand that I, what I was as – and as a film lover, I was old enough to get what was happening in terms of the technique, in terms of the cinematography, in terms of the visuals, and the story he was trying to tell. But I didn't understand it for a very long time. But I loved it because – it earns its silences. It earns the moments of which it has dialogue. And one of my greatest fears in life is the achievement of AI. So to see it, it is AI and, and the ape uprising, Simeon uprising. Those are the two things I fear the most in life. And seeing what Hal does in this movie, what he becomes, or he is sentient already, what he decides to do, the helplessness to me is correlative to Jaws. That's what struck me as I was watching the movie. There's no way out of this situation if the computer decides to kill you. And it's like, damn, because it controls everything. You know what's interesting is that over the years, like in TV Guide, when I would actually read TV Guide years ago, if they were showing 2001 Space Odyssey on one of the movie channels or whatever, mm. and the, the, the plot line... The synopsis was yeah. like a computer kills its astronaut. Right. It's like, like that's not what the movie's about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right, right. It's funny. It just occurs to me that we've done because your other, I know one of your other big fears is sharks. Yeah. And we have done, we've done the triumphant because we've done Jaws. Yes. We've done Planet of the Apes. Yes. And now we are doing 2001. Well, 2001. Knocking out your fears. Yeah. 2001. Same year. And 
and Planet of the Apes. Yes, yeah, 68, right? Not only did they come out the same year, they came out the same month. Wow. Oh, I didn't April. know that. April. So two of the greatest science fiction movies of all time came out in 1968 in the same month. Wow. That's crazy. What was your first time? So, so uh, I'm going to tell my first time story, but then I have another story to tell as well. Okay. So the first time, I think I was about the same age. I saw it on home, on TV. Um, and, uh, you know, so maybe 11 or, or 12 and went, what is this? And I remember having like, the first part was boring. The, the, the space stuff was really cool. Mm. The end I didn't understand, but I kept coming back to it, like uh, renting it on VHS for until I was in college. And then oh, wow. when I was, uh, Karen and I had first started dating. So this is like 91 or 92. I mentioned on the show before that the UC theater in Berkeley on university Avenue, that was the, the classic run theater. That's where I saw all the, they had Kung Fu Thursdays on. That's where I saw the Jackie Chan movies, but they also had double features. And so I said, Oh, I'm going to take this new girlfriend of mine to a double feature of 2001 A Space Odyssey and Clockwork Orange. Oh, oh my God. What? Wow. Because <laughs> I you know, cause I'm 22 yeah, or something sure. like that. And I just thought, I love movies. So, and, you know, I love this new girl. Uh, and so I, she, oh. she'd never seen a Kubrick film as far as I know. God. We get to the inner, you know, we get between 2000, 2001 is over. I don't think she was ready to break up with me, but she was so angry that I had taken her to that movie. She had been so bored. And then, and a real sign, this must have been very early in our relationship, yeah. she still went in to go watch Clockwork Orange. Oh, wow. And it was funny, because now I'm watching Clockwork Orange going, oh, this is worse. It's right. so different. Uh, well, and it's violent and horrible yeah. and, you know, one that I would like to do on The Cinephiles, but is gonna be a lot it to is. deal with um we walked out of clockwork orange which she loved whoa she loved clockwork orange you so you know head out to 30 years later almost and uh, last week karen and i sat down and she watched 2001 for the second time <laughs> and really liked it what is it about the film that that like uh, you know you you were curious enough to like it enough yeah. the first time you saw it. I thought it was boring. You know, you didn't, you, you and I are sort of on the same page with, with how we saw it the first time. But rather than just find it boring and just dismiss it, what was it about this film that even if you don't entirely like it or entirely get it, mm. the first couple of times you see it, you keep coming back to it. It's like it casts a spell. There is a magic there. There is a... There's, there's just some uh, like euphoria that it stays with you where it, 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 it wakens your curiosity where you want to see it again. You want to figure it out. I can't tell you how many times I've seen other films that I didn't like. And if I never see them again, like the new solo movie, I, uh, <laughs> sorry, I hate Mini it. review. <laughs> there you go. There's the review. Um, but 2001 is like, Wait, I gotta watch this again, and I watch it again and again. I must have seen it like seventy-five times. Well, I have two thoughts about this. The first thought is most of the movies that we never want to see again are because they're bad, <laughs> and I don't think you can say watching two thousand one, even not liking it, yeah. that it's bad right. because it is obviously so masterful in the way that it's shot and the special effects. You can't look at this and go, "There's there, there's no craftsmanship here." That's the first thing right. I'd say. The second thing I would say is I think of all the films that we've done on the cinephiles. And I would say, if you look at any of your top 100 lists, 2001 is the strangest 
movie that's on any of these lists. It's the only experimental film we've ever done. And I think this goes into the realm of this is an experimental film. Yeah. And so there's, and because of that high level of craftsmanship and because of the genius of Kubrick and because of its experimental nature, I think it draws you to go, wait a minute, I think I have to try this again. And that craftsmanship is astounding. Yeah. It's 50 it years old mm-hmm. and it looks like it could have been made today. Yeah. One of our friends, JT, tweeted it that he went to go see it and he said it's ahead of its time. I said it's still ahead of its time. Even now. Even now in 2018. It's the great, to me, it's my, in my opinion, it is the greatest sci fi movie ever made with Blade Runner coming second. And it is the best Kubrick movie ever made. I agree. Period. Because it is his most, in my opinion, it is his most realized, uh, intelligent love of cinema. And he turns, he, fucks with you in a, as the audience in so many incredible ways that he, you have to come to it. And that's what you mentioned earlier, Steve. What is it that brings us back? You asked this question. What is it that brings us back? It is that. It is that Kubrick does not lay it out for nope. you and f- spoon feed you or take your hand and hold you through it. But he does so much with the magic of cinema to make you come back to it like a moth to a flame. He turns the film. We are the apes in the film when the monolith shows up, 2001 is the monolith for us as filmgoers being that's apes great. in the film. Like that that's that's what I think it is. It's it's he took film and he went he that thing is like the advancement. It's evolution. 2001 is evolution to me. That's right. Absolutely, what it is. It's evolution. It's one of the key themes. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about pre-production. So this is after Doctor Strangelove, uh, which is another fi- uh, film we've, we've done on the yep. cinephiles. So mm-hmm. if if you want to find out about that, go back and listen to our <laughs> Strangelove episode. Good plug, plug, plug. <laughs> um, uh, and this is. At, at this, when he starts, he starts in 1963. It takes a while for this movie to get made. Mm. At that point, we're kind of behind in the space race. Um, That's right. The Russians were ahead. Yeah, the Russians Project are Mercury, ahead. Yeah. And uh, he reaches out to Arthur C. Clarke to develop something together. Um, and Arthur C. Clarke, he is one of those original, you know, we yeah. talked about the ABC of science fiction writers, and he is the C. And he started in the mid-30s. And he, uh, you know, I think it's 1938, he started writing for fanzines. And this is, the world of science fiction is just really different from what it was then. It was this uh, weird yeah. niche. Yeah, yeah. Was so what the magazines, the pulp yeah. magazines. The pulp magazines. Um, and he actually loved real science. In fact... Um, some people say that he actually came up with the idea of satellites in geosynchronous orbits and using them for communications. Wow. And he wrote early nonfiction essays about how you would go about doing this and how it could allow us to communicate all around the world. Mm. And it seems like, and from the small amount of research I did, that he didn't he might not have come up with, he probably did come up with the idea on his own, but a bunch of other people came up with that same idea kind of simultaneously. Right. But he really, it was deeply involved in it. And that led him to have a really close relationship with NASA, with early NASA. And so when Kubrick comes to him, this is one of the big reasons is because this guy is actually hooked up into real science. And one of the things, and you'll see this throughout the film, mm-hmm. is as mystical and abstract as a movie as this is, it is also hard science fiction. Mm-hmm. It is really about a real love of real science and real um, space travel. And Arthur C. Clarke offers him, hey, here are some early short stories of mine that I think would be cool for this thing. And the, and the one that Kubrick read that he really liked is called The Sentinel. The Sentinel. Yeah. And that is what this is based on. And they come up with the weirdest deal I've ever heard of in film, which is 
we're going to write the screenplay together and we're going to write the novel at the same time. And the screenplay is going to be written by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. And the novel is going to be written by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> it ends up, it doesn't come out that way. It comes out as Arthur C. Clarke only on the novel because Kubrick didn't really like the novel. <laughs> um, From what I understand, Kubrick kind of messed around with Clarke by do by like saying he was going to do certain things in the movie and not doing them and Clark did other scenes and so he purposefully misled Clark through this process so that his movie would stand alone from the novel hmm. which which is is not beyond the realm of possibility right. for yes. the arrogance of Kubrick and, and for lack of a better term is genius he did the same thing to a degree with The Shining he took right. that he said I don't care what Stephen King wrote I'm going to make my movie and so he has this desire to be in charge of it or to own what he does well after the success of spartacus yeah which was the only movie that kubrick ever did as a four hire director right. yeah and it was a very unpleasant experience for him and he said he would never again direct another movie that he did not also produce right so but it boy but it was still a very successful film and so was dr strange love or how i learned to stop worrying and love the bomb so very confident with that talking with Clark, he set out, like he said, I want to make the greatest science fiction movie ever. Like that was his plan yeah. from the beginning. And the beginning stages, the uh, the movie was going to be called uh, How the Solar System Was Won. Uh, there was another, t- yeah, because they were going off How the West Was yeah. Won. Uh, the other uh, working title for 2001 was uh, Journey Beyond the Stars. Right. Uh, but... 2001 A Space Odyssey, even though we are now way past that year, and uh, in a very bitter sense of irony, that year is now infamous because of a real-life incident. Right, then, right. Then I just always felt like that that really sucks. Yeah. That this movie that, that just signaled the future is now now associated with 9-11. Right. Um, but I remember that year I did see it on December 31st, 2001, which is like the day to oh, see wow. it. Yeah, that was, that was cool. That's cool. But anyway, so, so, so yeah, so this, it's a very interesting collaboration that, that Kubrick had with Clark. I mean, they were, they really worked very, very well together. There was no like, like irreconcilable differences in no, or, you know, so creative either. differences. Rather. Right. Yeah. Um, and one other influence that I just find that's interesting is the, uh, that's important for this film is the 1964 World's Fair in New York. Uh, and, and this is, and it's so interesting. These world, there are a couple of World's Fairs, the 39 World Fair, the Chicago World's Fair, where really important stuff happened. And New York is one of them. And one of the things, and Kubrick went there, and one of the things, people he found there was a bunch of the people who became the special effects po- folks on this movie. Wow. The most important being Douglas Trumbull. Um, and he goes on to be special effects for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which we already talked about. Blade Runner, which we Blade already Runner. talked about. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the most important special effects people, and, and Kubrick found him at the World's Fair. Um, also, by the way, at the World's Fair is where Great Moments, Disney had a whole bunch of stuff. Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln premiered there, mm-hmm. the People Movers, and of course, It's a Small World was at that 1964 oh, that right? wow. World's Fair. Yeah. Would you like to step into the movie? <laughs> Let's step into the movie with what we hear, not what we see. That overture is called Atmospheres. Mm-hmm. And we hear Atmospheres twice, three times throughout the course of the film. You hear it during the overture, and then uh, the return after the intermission, the what are the intracte? Sure. And then again during the uh, Stargate scene when Bowman is going through uh, the wormhole. 
What's funny is when I first saw the movie, the most of the times there was no overture. And there was no intermission because on the VHS tape, I don't think that stuff was there. That's true. Uh, that's, it that's didn't true. get added until the DVD. Right. Um, and so I, didn't know, so I didn't know that existed. But that sets the mood. That Absolutely. score, that, that, you know, just even when I sat down to watch it again, just recently watching it on the big screen, and you hear that music, like I got the freaking chills and it just immediately sets the tone. Yeah. It like it, it sort of what it sort of says to you is it clears your head of everything that you've experienced that day, whatever might be on your mind. It brings you, it eases you into the mindset that you need to be in to absorb every moment of that film. That is what that overture does. Well, and there's something I feel that we should say as we ease into 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I know there's some people that watch the movie and then listen to our podcast, and there are other people who listen to us and then decide to watch the movie. And what I feel that I must tell you (laughs) is that you got to settle in, folks. This movie is unlike anything else. The pace of it, particularly by 2018 standards, is ridiculously slow. And you have to you got to accept it. You can't fight it. <laughs> Don't battle against it. Yeah. Patience. Patience. Settle yes. in. Absolutely. Just just let the film absorb you. Let it consume you. Let it envelop you. And you will yeah. be rewarded because it, it is a movie that will stay with you forever. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, one thing that will stay with you forever is the music and the sunrise at the very opening of the film. Thus spoke Th- Zarathustra. Yeah. Richard Strauss, this is some of the most iconic movie in film history. One of the greatest openings. Just that score, that da da da. By that time, the first time I'd seen the film, I'd heard that music elsewhere. Right. On commercials. Right. You know, like when they're making fun of other things. To, so to hear that music in the way that it was intended to be heard in a cinematic landscape like 2001, I went, oh, okay, now I get it. But the symmetry of the planets, of the sun and the moon and the yeah. earth, and, and just the way, it, you know, there's a lot of symmetry throughout the course of this movie, by the way. But uh, but just, just that 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 you know, the, the building of the score and the thumping of the, the drum. It's just, again, it is another, right after the, uh, the overture, which is chilling. And then you have the, 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 that score. Uh, it just, it just also chilling in a, in a, in a more rousing way. And what's interesting, by the way, so the, the, the piece of music, thus spoke the Zarathustra, I'm always going to stumble over that word, <laughs> is that title comes from Nietzsche, which is, that's one of his books. And so Nietzsche, and we'll get into this maybe a little later, one of the interpretations of 2001 A Space Odyssey has a lot to do with Mr. Nietzsche. So yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that a little later. After this just unbelievably dramatic visual opening, we go to... The Dawn, dawn of, of Man. Of Man. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing about the Dawn of Man. Throughout the course of the film, it is divided into chapters. Right. Four chapters. But the Dawn of Man is not just the part of the film with the apes. The Dawn of Man 
is the entire movie. Oh, because there's oh. no title. You're right. There's no exactly. subtitle. The Dawn of Man encompasses the man-apes that we see four million years ago. And it goes all the way up till the point where Dave Bowman turns into the Star Child. Yeah. That entire four million year period where we are right now, this we are the Dawn of Man. Mm-hmm. And it took decades for me to realize that, wait a minute, the Dawn of Man, it's not just the apes. It's everything. Mm. We are the Dawn of Man right now. Wow. Okay, I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah. For, for, uh, which, which, by the way, that is what this movie is. And in fact, yeah. I think the pace of the film, the slow pace, it kind of forces you to be contemplative. You can't, you're not, because there's not so much happening that you're keeping, you're not struggling to keep up with the story. You're kind of going, okay, I'm looking at this thing. And what you're looking at are these gorgeous shots of these, uh, first of just, you know, kind of the savanna, th- this ancient world, mm-hmm. and, and which, by the way, those are all still photography. I didn't realize. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, rear projected. Yep. Yep. Is that and and Kubrick, who was deathly afraid of flying, didn't fly to Africa to go shoot this stuff. He had still photographers, and this is what's so bizarre to me. And this is like a perfect Kubrick story, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Is that he's on the phone with them. And he has di- divided up what the shot should be on, like, graph paper. And he's, he can't see what they're shooting because that technology doesn't exist. Right. So he's saying, no, no, put that uh, rock, that should be at A5 coordinate on the graph paper, and frame it so he is describing wow. without seeing wow. what they should shoot based on this having coordinates on a graph. That is, that is astounding. That, but that is, it, it is that mindset. Yep. That makes 2001 such a meticulous film that, yep. that, like you said, even by today's standards, is still ahead of its time. So Gee. what is going on with the man-apes in the Dawn of Man sequence? In what way? I mean, like, they're herbivores. They're yeah. not fighting with anybody. They're right. getting along with the animals. Right. And then eventually, they, just, they find the tool, which is the bone. But that... before you get to that point, yeah. before you get to that point, man, ape... Where, let's yeah. call them apes just sure. to they are dying they are starving they are vegetarians right. they're eating berries and they've got these these walking masses of protein right in front of them yeah but they are they are dying and they are being killed off by starvation by other predators like that tiger that attacks yep. the one ape yeah they are humanity of four million years ago is an endangered species well, and they're in they're in conflict with another group right. of apes that has you know staked out this waterhole, right. and there's a there's a moment of you know them sort of posturing with each other, and we back down. And we should say, by the way, that these are uh, dancers and mostly mimes. And it's so interesting because, by the way, when I was a kid, it I just. It I never occurred to me. They, yeah, I, they, I didn't occur to me there were people in suits, right? Because <laughs> they just looked so convincing to yeah. me when I was a kid. Um, and the main the main guy, by the way, is Daniel Richter. Dan- Daniel Richter. Yeah, he's a moon watcher. Yeah, yeah. That's that's his. Uh, you know, in the, in the credits, mm. uh, the the lead ape. Yeah. is is called Moon Watcher. Now, now at this point, after we've established that humanity is dying, that the apes are dying, and it's it's only a matter of time. They are sleeping in a in a corner of right. a of a mountain of a of a rock structure, and they are if you look look at their faces, they are terrified. Mm. They are terrified. You can hear the tiger growling off camera. 
and they are they are not you know settling in they are just like terrified and then the next scene focuses on the moon watcher and the lighting is on him as we start to hear the music of requiem is that the name of the, that's the name of the track that's the name of the track it's heavy drone yep. dissonant yeah yeah and uh it is just like atmospheres it is a mood setting piece right that heralds the first time we see the monolith And the way that scene is structured with Moonwatcher freaking out, waking up the other apes, and then the camera pans like it's it's a it's a full screen shot, and there amidst the apes and the, the rocks and is this perfectly symmetrical thing, this monolith with, with its a uh, ratio of one by four by nine. And it looks completely out of place with this Dawn of Man sequence and the apes are going crazy and they're losing their minds and they're jumping around like crazy until Moonwatcher before the others gets the courage to go up to the monolith and slowly start to caress it, feel it up and down. Then the other apes start to do the same and where they went from being like totally nuts, the monolith has a soothing effect on them. I wonder how many times they shot that scene Mm. until Kubrick was like, okay, you got it. Because I'm sure it wasn't three takes. <laughs> no. Well, for, first of all, and again, it's, this is something that came up in Lawrence of Arabia, is that we kept saying over and over again, this shot is gorgeous. This shot is amazing. Yeah. This shot is beautiful. The same is true here. Every single shot, it will be redundant to say it, but this one in particular, where there's some, there's something in the foreground, there's midground, there's background, every the way everything is framed, yeah. the way the bodies are approaching it and slowly touching the monolith, just the design of the monolith, everything about it is gorgeous. And yes, I'm certain. And by the way, the backgrounds this is all shot on a soundstage and those backgrounds are just those still photographs from shot in africa so convincing yeah it's just amazing and they're doing with front projection with apparently there was no projector bright enough to do what kubrick wanted so they had to invent a new one naturally (laughs) no problem (laughs) yeah right (laughs) and and, and there's even like it there's the shot where there's this like leopard with glowing eyes and that was just a happy accident from the brightness of that front projector Mm. that's what made his eyes glow um but anyway, getting to this point, so we have a monolith. Yeah. The solution of what is the monolith or the, the, the answering that question is something that we can, you know, think about forever. Yeah. I'm doing research for the podcast. You know, some people claim that the monolith is the reason evolution begins. Some people claim that the monolith is, uh, the savior, uh, there's a numerous ways that you can look at the monolith, but to me, I always thought that it was symbolic of man's always being uh, out of place with its own technology, like being out of step with its own technology. Whatever it creates or walks into, it cannot handle. It can create it. It cannot handle it. And oh, that struck me. The significance of the monolith, what we see happen twice is the monolith planting the seed to advance humanity, Mm. to evolve humanity. It happens 4 million years ago, and it happens again in 2001. And the reason for the 4 million gap, 4 million year gap in the advancement of the evolution 
is uh, I'll, I'll explain it as we get closer to the uh, the moon sequence. Um, but I, I I I'm going with you, and and I've always felt that the 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 purpose of the monolith it is it is artificial intelligence. It's a, a sorry sorry extraterrestrial intelligence, right? And it is that that our evolution, our advancement as a species was was advanced with the help of of life outside the earth right so the monolith is is there four million years ago it has this night with the apes and then it disappears it disappears and it is buried on the moon where it will not be dug up for another four million years but what it left behind and the very next scene changed the course of humanity because humanity was able to survive, but at what price? Right. At what price? Because like you pointed out, John, they were, everybody was getting along. Yeah. But they were dying. Yep. But now, Moonwatcher has this epiphany for the first time in the history of humanity up to that point humanity had an epiphany moon watcher had this moment where he realized that this heavy bone could be used as a weapon and again we hear that spoke zarathustra right and that sort of that well that not sort of nothing is sort of in this movie um <laughs> it, it brings it brings moon watcher this idea that it could be used as a as a weapon he's the way he slowly starts to move the bone around he sees it smashing the skull of the right. other of the other animals in the area and just this it 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 it, it awakens him mm-hmm. he's it, it's a rousing moment yeah and then suddenly it's dinner time <laughs> well i want to so i want to go back to it for two things the yeah. first thing is is there is a quote from arthur c clark which i think even though i think this is kubrick's movie not clark's right but I, this but this quote i think is so key to the ideas of this film and the quote is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I, I think that is, is that, and what's one of the interesting, fantastic. Yeah. It's a great, and, and you think about it, it's true. Yep. Is that, is that oh, if cool. you're, you know, in, in the, at, in the Roman empire and someone shows up with an iPhone, yeah, that's magic. Yeah. Like that, that you can't conceive of what that is. And one of the interesting changes that Kubrick made from the Sentinel to this is apparently in the, which I've never read, but apparently in the Sentinel, the thing they find, it's all about some weird little machine that's buried in a cave mm. and that it sounds like, you know, kind of a floating computer kind of thing. Right. And Kubrick went, no, 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 no. We need to have something that we can't understand is that for what the apes and the dawn of man discover, it is magic. But Kubrick was like, no, this has to seem like magic to us. Right. And that monolith is magic. It is, it is technology so far beyond anything we can understand that right. we, we can't know what that thing is. But, and that keeps getting repeated throughout the film. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's what's interesting. I do want to say one final point, which is, or one point rather, about the sequence. It's not a final point. Right, right. We've got a long way to go. interesting about, uh, but what you brought up, Steve, earlier, the mentioning of Chris Nolan. It strikes me now that the song, the score that comes on for the monolith, is very similar to the opening score of The Dark Knight when the Joker is there. You're right. That dissonance. You're totally right. That it dissonance. 100%. Right? And that maybe that's his homage to Kubrick. Because when the whole beginning is like that, 
actually going the whole the undercurrent yep. going through the whole. So maybe that is his little and it was perfect because it's it's as unsettling when we see the monolith in the movie for the first time because you hear that little grumbling, oh, that grumbling uh, underneath. When you when you see the Joker, when you hear that, it is just as unsettling because he is about to change everything, oh, just like point. the Monlet did. That's a great point. Well, and I want to go just just because this moment is yeah. so important. We have to talk about the, this moment with the bones. You know, is that he's sitting there? Moonwatcher is sitting there, yeah, and he looks at the bones in front of him, and there's this moment where his head tilts, right, right, and that head tilt is the, is you can see a thought, right, and, and also while he is tilting his head. Yeah, there is that flash of, of the, the monolith. monolith. So yeah. important. Yes, is that and this is that is that okay? This thing has something to do with the key moments in human evolution. Something to do with it, and that is why the only other time the monolith did that yep. was in two thousand one, which is why everything from that moment in the beginning to two thousand one, this is all. The dawn of man, <laughs> all of it. Um, I'm going to convince you of this before the end of the show. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I'm going to argue with it. I, yeah. I, 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 I think I'm good with that. And this is one of the interesting things. There's a lot of people with a lot of theories about, quote unquote, what separates humans from animals. And there's right. all sorts of theories about it. Oh, it's language. It's tool making, which is sort of what we're seeing here. It's um, a social structure. It's the development of the f- frontal cortex in the brain. It's consciousness, which is definitely something that this film is about is what is the nature of consciousness mm-hmm. but the the one of the things with the development of the of the frontal lobe of the brain is the idea to think in abstracts so to think in the future to think in the past and to think about something that could become something else and that head tilt moment that is that moment mm. you know where he looks at this bone yep. which had no meaning whatsoever and starts to go, wait, there could be a meaning. And that as the music builds, there's this low angle shot of him in the moment of discovery where he lifts that bone up and starts beating it. And it is it's like it's an aha moment. It is joyful and violent and scary. So, yeah, and then later on, they're eating meat. It's interesting, by the way. The animals still aren't scared of them. Right. So they haven't been killing them long enough for the animals to go, oh, we got to get out of here. We got to get the hell out of here. Um, and the, the, we can see the babies are eating meat and they're, the babies, I think, are actually monkeys. Yeah, they are. Um, and now suddenly we're back into conflict with this other troop. Mm-hmm. But there's a major difference. Now, the, the tribe, the Moonwatcher tribe, not only are they armed with weapons, they are standing, standing. upright. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the other gang has no idea. They're just like ready to, to fight for their territory. Right. Well, they intimidated him before. Right. right. And know. one of the apes charges Moonwatcher and boom, right over the head. And like, and all the other apes join in and start smashing the yep. ape over the head with their bones. And one of them smashes it so hard that the bone breaks. Yeah. And the the uh, uh, defenders uh, are so horrified by what they've seen that they back off. So I want to ask, before we get to the next cut, which is obviously one of the key moments in film history, how do you feel at this moment? Okay. That's a great question. Uh, how do you feel, John? <laughs> <laughs> that was the best buck pass I've ever seen. <laughs> I didn't know you were throwing me the ball. Here, I'm going to go to layup. No, um, for me, I've... 
the symbolism of it is inescapable, right? The idea that once we develop weapons, we will use them to intimidate other human beings, even though they are essentially members of our tribe, our species, to defend or to take territory and to maintain security of our people, right? So you, you in essence... It's a microcosm of what we will eventually be doing as we draw lines in the sand, separating one country and the border from another, even though we're on the same fucking landmass. I, I, I found that I still find that scene to be disturbing. Yeah, I think it's really disturbing. Of course, it, it is. is it's a disturbing man, scene, and it's like, naked truth. But, but it's like, what choice? Human. It was either evolve right. or die. Well, that's the question, right? The monolith, you said this earlier, the monolith sparks the evolution, but at what cost? What cost. So, and that Why cost, do we survive? Yeah. And, and so so after the other apes have, have vacated the premises. Well, it, it, and, and let me just say, too, is that we had a moment of joyfulness when he discovered the bone. Sure. And the use of the tool. And now we have the flip side of that mm-hmm. same thing. Ape is killing ape. And I think one of the themes of this film is the... Um, multi-dimensional costs of technology is that on the one hand yes. it allows you to do all this stuff like get some more food mm-hmm. and on the other hand the possession of the technology separates us and creates opportunities for violence and distrust and- Let's what look what's happening now we've never been more connected to each other as a species yet more divided totally. than ever and that's that's because of social media because of technology because of our access to each other we now know each other's innermost thoughts at every second if we want to yeah. and that allows us to judge separate divide destroy attack uh also love connect help yep. and uh, but there's also there's always the negative side to it yep. So, you know, you're watching that scene and you're watching the apes bash the other apes over, over you know, with the bones yeah. and the weapons and, and just even just watching it again recently, I just went like, I wasn't like, yeah, you know, I, I was like, oh, like, mm. like a loss of, it's almost like a loss of innocence. Yes. Yeah. Nice. I think that's exactly it. That's a perfect that's how point. It feels. And that loss of innocence. So we see Moonwatcher with the other apes behind him. Moonwatcher is standing his most upright he's you know growling yeah in victory and he walks out of the shot and then the next shot is the shot yep the shot of moon watcher not just throwing the bone in the air but but winding up yep he winds up to throw the bone in the air screaming why why is he screaming why does he throw the bone in the air? Does he throw it in the air out of triumph? Or does he throw it in the air out of like, oh, what have I done? Shame. So wow. as a young man, it was obvious to me that it's triumph. Wow. And when I watched this last time, it absolutely looked like, oh God, what have I done? What have, what have I done? Wow. What have we, like, like. What have we wrought? What did we do? What, yeah. what, like. Like the shock of it just well, like, if you look what at, if did you, we do? If you look at the battle, when he Incredible. hits that other ape and that ape goes down, he is shocked. Yes. Because that it's there's no it I don't think he expected it to just like wipe him out like that. Yeah. There is a fear along with that triumph. If that can happen to him or it, it can happen to me. Right. If we allow it to, or they get their hands on bones for the longest whatever. time. For the longest time. I have time. never thought it was shame. I thought it was triumph. For the longest time, I incredible. thought it was triumph. That, yeah. that yeah, we got it back and we're dominant, yeah. you know. But but 
in more recent years, I looked at it as a, a, you know, as, as humanity became more aware, like it did at that moment, just the shame and the shock that, that they weren't killing other animals now for food. Right. They were killing their own people. Yeah. And in the greatest cut transition, I mean, it is the greatest transition in movie history. The bone in midair falling back to earth and that quick cut to the spy satellite. Yeah. Yep. Cause that's, and that's what that is. One weapon to another, mm-hmm. 4 million years, one weapon to another, which for years, by the way, I didn't know that it was, I was only doing research this time that I found out that it's some kind of weapon platform spy yeah. satellite yeah. thing. It's funny as, as an editor, one of the weirdest things to me about that cut is in my mind, logically you would make the cut on the upward path. But he waits until the bone is coming, coming down. down. Right, right. And I just, and I, I this is just because as an editor, I go, why did he make that choice? Why? And it's, of course, the right choice. I don't know why. Really? It, it, it's, okay. Yeah, why did he wait like he... So I will answer this and then I will go back one last thing before we jump into this next section of the film. Yes. To, the reason I think he goes down is because it is the fall of man. It's the symbol of man, the falling of man. That's what I've always felt. Mm. That mm-hmm. it's, it goes down... Because as great as the tool is, the exaltation, you it always will fall back down to earth, which is the end of joy. And so, I like it sure. for for me. This whole beginning sequence is also very correlative to religion. God is in the Garden of Eden. God is the monolith. The, he discovers the tool when God appears. I'm naked. I'm now aware that I'm naked. So wait, is God the monolith or is the monolith the apple well, the tree of knowledge? Well, yeah, well, that's what I mean. God well, God put it there is what I'm saying. Sure. God put the monolith there. God is the the apple. Because we don't know that they're aliens until what's-his-face says it just as Hal is dying. We have no idea there's extraterrestrial stuff necessarily until this recording way well, later in well, the film. And, and honestly, and so, we don't know anything. Right, because, exactly. like, what does that guy know? Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Is he telling that's his limited knowledge? So anyway, I, I find correlative here because uh, that is Adam or Cain killing Abel in essence when the yeah, ape kills the I, other I, ape. So, that's a thing in my mind. And so what have I done? I've killed my own brother. In essence, it's all to me. It's it's correlative. It has symbolism within it about religion, also about the dawn of civilization and what have you. And yes, what have we become? Being being in in the Catholic religion, obviously driven out of the Garden of Eden. But that's I think that's always been a wrong way to interpret it because it is God giving us knowledge. It is what we do with that knowledge that is either great or terrible. And so then, so now we can, if we want, jump in. By the way, God didn't want us to have that knowledge. That's the. I don't know what he wanted. I don't know God. (laughs) He clearly said he didn't want you to have that. Yeah, right. It's in the Bible. (laughs) It was very clear on these instructions. Um, Anyway. One one, one small interesting thing, by the way, is that that nuclear uh, satellite or whatever it is, that was a whole other plot that Kubrick had. There was going to be like a nuclear war in this movie. And then he decided it's too close to strange love. And so they didn't do it. Which Oh, is that right? Yeah. I think it would have been heavy handed. So they waited until 2010 to throw that one in there. (sighs) You know, I saw 2010 when it came out. Yeah. I literally have no memory of it at all. Really? I I actually, you know what? It is a good movie on its own terms. Yes. No, it's not 2001. Nowhere near 2001. uh, I mean, it was directed by the guy who directed Capricorn one, Peter Hyams. (laughs) Who I love. But that's a great movie. He by did the Running way. Scared, Running Scared with Billy yeah, Crystal yeah, and uh, yeah. Gregor Hines, which I uh, but um, but 2010 stands on its own terms. It's a mm. very good movie. Okay, we'll talk about that some other time. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephiles' new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game. 
Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. So we're in space. We're yeah. in space. And we hear the beautiful sound of the, the blue, blue Danube, Johann Strauss. Johann Strauss. The two Strausses, are they related? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I should have checked. I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> are they? Um... I didn't realize he uses uh, Blue Danube in Paths of Glory, um, which I had totally forgotten in the ballroom scene. Mm. I love Paths of Glory, by the way. I would love to do that. With I want to do it. I, it's, a, do it. it's a really good movie. And um, this is where I don't think there's any movie like this. Like the, uh, the attention to detail, the scientific attention to detail, the complexity and the difficulty of the shots yeah. and the total lack of plot or character or anything that's happening for the next really long time as you watch a spaceship, Pan Am's regular flight to the space station, <laughs> dock at the space station. It is remarkable. The attention to detail with the models, with the uh, the rear projection of the people in the windows. Yeah. You know, this was not CGI. This was absolutely everything about this movie was practical. Everything about it. And it still holds up. It still looks looks terrific. Amazing. And, and just the, the way the, the the movie is so grounded in reality, uh, just in the way that the spacecraft has to line up perfectly with the with the uh, turning space station. Every, everything about it. I mean, like we come in and we're in this, what looks like a plane, yeah. you know, so he's building on what the technology was at the time. And you can see Kubrick and he has a real science advisor, which is hadn't really happened in this way before thinking about what would a plane be like that flies to space? Yeah. You know, there had been no space shuttle yet. None of this exists. And we see a guy sleeping 
And we see floating next to him, a pen floating through space and in walks a stewardess. And she's walking in this very strange way yeah. because of course there's no gravity. Yeah. Or gravity boots. Yeah. You got the Velcro. Like yep. Velcro. And I love, by the way, how they did the floating pen. Yeah, they put on a glass. <laughs> yeah, a glass that, sheet. Yeah. That people are just moving around this glass sheet, and she pulls, and it's stuck to the sheet, and she just unsticks it. Yeah. But it is totally convincing. Yeah, yeah. You can't see it unless you're really, really, really looking for yeah. it, which you, you can't see it right. in 70 millimeter, trust me. But you have to really, really look for it. And, and as you said, watching the docking in, in space of watching the rotation and them lining up Every single shot and slow, you know, showing the yeah. POV of the pilots and showing the control room and showing all these things of how they do it. And to me, it was funny. I just was thinking about, I mean, this took huge amounts of time to pull this off. And I was thinking about the kinds of shots that we spend huge amount of time on special effects shots today. And usually the purpose of them is for me to make you go, wow, that was a really cool shot. Yeah. Like that's their purpose. And what Kubrick is doing is making you go, wow, that's fascinating technology. Space travel is amazing. Yeah. He's not, it's not like the thrill of watching a comic book movie or a sci-fi movie today. And it's not even cinematic thrill as much. It, I really think it's, this is so cool. Yeah. You know? And, and so, but these, uh, these special effects shots that we're seeing, uh, special effects supervisor, Douglas Trumbull, who, uh, yeah. you know, we've already mentioned, He's um, a man. And uh, uh, did not get the credit on the end credits of the movie, sadly. Because uh, Cooper got it. Yeah. Cooper took it for himself. And that was the only Oscar this movie got, by the way. Huh. It was nominated for four Academy Awards uh, for a director, screenplay, and uh, set decoration. And it won one for best visual effects. Yeah. And that went to Kubrick. Which, by the way, he did do a lot. I, I think it kind of should have been both of them. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you know, we weren't allowed to at the time, but who knows? Yeah, who knows? So, so, so we're now we're inside the space station. Inside the space station, yeah. and uh, Doctor Haywood Floyd, played by actor William Sylvester, who's going to Clavius Base uh, to uh, investigate uh, the the cover up that's being that's being done. Well, this is what's so yeah. we spend so much time in the D. You know, it's like he, he rotates in in this weird room. Yeah. He checks in. He gets met by this guy. He goes through some security stuff. Yep. We hear his name. He walks down this curved floor with red chairs. Mm -hmm. And of course, the reason that the floor is curved is because it's the exterior wall of the rotating space station right. because that's where gravity comes from. Gravity comes from rotation, and that's something we're going to see throughout the film. And the first thing he splits up with the guy he's with says, I'll meet you at the meeting because he's going to make a video call home. Yeah. He Skypes. He Skypes. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, is another thing that came from the 1964 World's Fair because there, Bell Labs demonstrated the first video phone call. Oh, wow. And they yeah. were also doing that on Star Trek, by the way. But yeah. You know. Well, but well, that's <laughs> not cross the streets here. Well, except well, that that's next year because this yeah. is shot in '65. Right. Star Trek premieres in '66. Right. So even though this movie doesn't come out till '68, yeah. Um, but I mean, it's so and it's so funny because this is like the golden age of science fiction right here. Yeah. Star Trek Absolutely. and, Star and Trek. 2001 happening right next to each other. Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then the Sound he... of Music. Yeah, totally. totally. Total sci-fi. <laughs> well, it's, that movie's not very accurate, so maybe it is. <laughs> yeah. No, that's not really what happened to the Von Trapps. Not, it's not. A, I looked it up one time. It is not even close. 
uh, remotely what happened. It is the pure vulture. fiction. Pure fiction. But if we digress. Yes. The um, as he's walking through, he walks through the Howard Johnsons because, of course, there's a Howard Johnson sure. on the space. Those are hojos. That's right. And uh, there he runs into some other scientists. It's not Russian scientists. Russian yeah. scientists. And you know, so far, like all of the dialogue we've seen is all pleasantries. Right. Like, hey, Dr. Foy, great to have you back. Oh, then just go through this and. Uh, oh, I'm going to call my daughter. Hey, Squirt, how you doing? Oh, my, you know, mom's not home, whatever. And then more pleasantries when, when he meets the Russian scientists. Yeah. But now the pleasantries go away when one of them asks, what's going on? Eclavius. Uh, Dr. Floyd, I hope you don't think I'm being too inquisitive, but perhaps you can clear up the great big mystery about what has been going on up there. I'm afraid I don't know what you mean. And it's interesting because they're still speaking in a very pleasant way. Oh, yes. But there's obvious, I mean, this is as underplayed <laughs> as you can be. And he goes, oh, what do you mean? And it's like, well, they haven't re- taken phone calls for 10 days. There was an emergency landing they sent away that's breaking on the rules. And finally, what does Haywood say? I'm not at liberty to discuss it. I'm not at liberty to discuss it. Right. And this is a really low level of, wait, what's going on here? I mean, it's yeah. handled so unimportantly. Uh, it's really fascinating. It, it's handled so unimportantly, and in the end, it's a it's a moment of uh, of tension that has nothing to do with the scope of the movie. Right. Yeah. Nothing that really is said or spoken about really has nothing to do with the with the grandness of the whole thing. Right. That's it. That's it's about the grand. It's about the scope. It's about the grandness. This thing about about oh, it's about a killed computer, and you know, oh, it's you know, what's going on at, at the moon? You know, like it's like it is an absolute situation where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. it's also correlative in that here are the two tribes again. Sure, the Russians and the Americans. There's like the two tribes in Dawn of Man. Oh, that seems mm. right. It's the Russians and the Americans. He is Moon, whatever you said his name. Watcher. Yeah, Moon he Watcher. He's Moon Watcher. Watcher. Floyd is more ways than one. Right. And if you notice the Russian. Wow, I like this point. This is great. Yeah, if oh. you notice the Russian, as he's moving his finger, he's flicking him off. He's using the middle finger when he's, he's doing it like this. And it's a subtle flick off. I never saw that. So, never like, noticed that. So, like, when you, little things like that are happening. I only notice this because I, I am a very impish person and can do that sometimes myself. So when I see it in a film, it's very obvious to me. <laughs> but like, yeah, so it's to me, that's what is going on here is the pleasantries are essentially disguising what's really obviously going on, which is the difference in the two tribes. I'm so excited by what, this point because I think it's so great because the through line of what is the monolith and what's really happening and what is the evolution of man or the yeah. dawn of man is that there is this two, there's several things going on. One is the advancement of technology and the bone is the advancement of technology in the right. first. And obviously space travel is the advancement of technology because we can't get to the moon right. unless we've advanced enough to get to the moon. But then the other thing going on is the evolution of violence yes. of how we, and the use of technology is a wedge between us and other groups. And that's clearly what's going on in this very civil uh, way. Dawn of, so, so at the dawn of man sequence, the two uh, tribes of apes were yeah. the superpowers. Yeah. And here you go advance four million years, and, and still, still there are two superpowers that can't mm-hmm. get along. Right. Well, so what has all this evolution and technology brought us? Nothing. Well, which is why your point makes so much sense. The entire movie 
is the dawn of man because we still have not well, and moved past. No, I, I don't think I ever argued with it. And and, and 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 the bone, by the way, is the weapon of mass destruction yes. at the dawn of the beginning. And now nuclear power and yep. space travel and artificial intelligence yes. is going to be the next weapon of mass destruction. Right. Um, all right. So, but he can't talk to the Russians because he's got to go off uh, to the moon. So we're right. back. We're back now. We're on another spacecraft. Yep. That is, uh, and we're back with the Blue Danube. Yep. And uh, you know, again, a very long sequence as the spacecraft approaches the moon, and the this scene in particular gave a lot of conspiracy theorists a lot of ammunition. Oh, yeah. When it came to the theory that. Stanley Kubrick filmed the Apollo 11 moon landing. But what about Apollo 12 and Apollo 14, 15, 16, and 17? He didn't do those. <laughs> they got, and he didn't do it. They got someone else. He didn't do Apollo 13 because Ron Howard did that one. Yeah, boom. The, boom. The, the, and by the way, if you want to hear us talk more about this, on our sh- episode on The Shining, yes. we talked about the documentary Room 237 oh, where they get. Two, yeah, that's yeah. a great So, uh, So, great so uh, yes, this is definitely where those conspiracy theories come from. Mm-hmm. The, the science stuff on the on this trip to the moon is just amazing. Yeah. We see her with the trace of food. Uh, Floyd is once again asleep. Um, the stewardess is... Wait, wait. Can we talk for a second? Is, don't you think it's weird that she's watching a jujitsu? I'm surprised you didn't bring this. Is this later on? The stewardess is watching a jujitsu video. Yeah. Yeah. Is it weird? It's weird. It is Why weird. is she it watching jujitsu? It is weird. I don't yeah, know. What right. are we dealing with here? I have no idea. Does she have unruly passengers on these flights? Like, I want to know what she's watching jujitsu. <laughs> I mean, I get it because it was by, new. By the way, I bet money arts. was judo, not jujitsu. Oh, was it judo? Okay, sorry. Yeah. But either way, it's martial arts. Yeah. And I yeah, think absolutely. because also martial arts was becoming big in, in the world in the 60s too, 60s, 70s. So I, that wouldn't be surprising to me to have that thrown in there. But the Velcro things are really interesting too. It's like, once again, it's like this idea, like we can create this technology, but we are kind of, it's almost like a, a WALL-E. Like we are so stuck on the spaceship for so long, we have to make these adjustments. Like we have to learn how to go to the bathroom. Like if there's instructions on how to go to the toilet. I think that's it's ridiculous. That is literally the funniest moment in the yeah. movie. Yeah, it it's is. Just... And, and it, if you go to IMDb. Instructions are so extensive. If you go to IMDb. Oh, yeah. And the 2001 Space Odyssey page. Yeah. Go to the trivia Portion. Okay. And they actually have all of that written out. <laughs> they are actual instructions for using a zero G toilet. That's Which, by funny. the way, is a complicated and difficult yeah. thing. And I want to say too. So there's this moment. The stewardess is, you know, she's on with the Velcro shoes, yeah. and she walks into sort of what looks like a cylinder, and then she walks up the round sides of the wall until she's completely upside down, right. and then walks away upside down. And this is a technology that's going to be used multiple times throughout the film. And what it is is. The whole set is on a gimbal, which means you can oh, yeah. flip the whole set around. And sometimes what we will have is the camera attached to the set. So the camera is also rotating. Sometimes the camera not attached to the set. In this case, the camera is attached to the set. So what she's doing, she's really walking in place as the entire set is spinning around her wow. until it's upside down and the camera is spinning with the set. So the camera is now on the ceiling, essentially filming her upside down, and then she can walk out of the room. Amazing. It's it looks It's so cool to watch, even today yeah. you know i i like so take your time you know i you know there's no rush i i'm, I'm happy to watch that scene it's it's fun it's fun seeing that because you're like you're, you're there's a the little kid inside of you just goes how did they do that yeah. so so i mean they, they they really filmed the hell out of that scene with with showing the spacecraft like land not only land on the moon but then it's a it's a it, it, it sort of descends 
into the moon, into the moon base, Clavius base. Um, and when and when the it descends, there's just, there's a, a, a an art term which is ambiguous space, which is that you you look into a space and you don't know what, really what you're looking at. And what happens is first the the space capsule is going to land, land, and the sort of round teeth, spiraling teeth of the space station open up on the moon. And then we're in this shot in this kind of red space, and you go like, I don't really know what this is. And then slowly you see this space capsule let, descend through it. And your brain kind of locks in and goes, oh, I get it. And the thing that's really profound, I think, about this moment is it establishes scale. Mm. Because that spaceship's actually really small compared to this area it's landed in. And it gives you a sense of how darn big this moon base really is. Mm. And of course, in 1965, when they were filming this, it was just assumed that we would have a base on the moon in 2001. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The uh, Arthur, Arthur Clarke actually said to... Stanley Kubrick, the next time they do a movie in space, it'll be on location. Huh. That is how convinced Arthur C. Clarke was that that with the, with the progression of the space race going from you know Mercury to Gemini and yeah. then later Apollo, all you know going from Alan Shepard's fifteen minute flight to landing on the moon in just eight years. Uh, we certainly should have been by that point, especially in 2018, let alone 2001. But right. Nixon cut that's the budget. So, and that that's what's that. so sad is we landed on the moon the first time in July of 69 yeah. and for the last time in December of 72. Mm-hmm. And we never went back. Never went back. Mankind has not been any further than low Earth orbit. Yeah. However, Voyager 1 is an interstellar space, is way out there. Yeah. which is very, very cool. And then yeah. it's going to come back to us as is V'ger. V'ger. <laughs> that's, that's right. um, Speaking of long space docking scenes, yeah. Also, <laughs> desi- the Enterprise. also right. designed by Douglas Trumbell. Yeah, there we go. Right. Um, no surprise. And uh, now we're in this meeting. This is such a Kubrick scene. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's the one-point perspective with the ceilings, these bright, reflective walls. Yeah, the lights on the walls. wide shots. Shadowy figures at times, yeah. And this guy gets... And it's all very formal. Mm. And it's so funny comparing this to his last film, Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove was dialogue-heavy, yeah. passionate, funny, chaotic. Dark, short. Dark. Yeah. And funny. this is slow and distant and emotionally detached and... Haywood gets uh, Haywood Floyd gets up to make his speech, and we hear now officially that this whole idea of this contagious disease is made up, and it's because of some discovery. Congratulations on your discovery, which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. Now, uh, I know there have been some conflicting views held by some of you regarding the need for complete security in this matter. More specifically, your opposition to the cover story. And it's funny, he's not very sympathetic mm. to these guys. No, he's not. He says, like, you know, we're just going to have to keep it going for as long as we have to keep it going. And we're, you know, we really appreciate everything you've done. You know, he's just giving them the, the lip service of yeah. a bureaucrat because uh, he's the science advisor to the president. Well, and he has a great political response, which is something like, <laughs> I completely sympathize with your negative view, <laughs> <laughs> which is such a, like, Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I hear you. I understand you. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do about anything. It. Yeah. Nothing's yeah. going to change. And then at the end, he kind of asked them for like loyalty oaths or something. Oh, that sounds familiar. Yeah. I mean, this is, and there's very strained applause. <laughs> he kind of says, look, yeah. this is a big discovery. You guys are going to be remembered, but we're going to do this this way. Yeah. 
Um, and, and it's obvious, you know, those Russians were right to be worried about something. They have discovered something. They are breaking this treaty yeah. and they are, you know, some new tool, some a new tool. Exactly right. Uh, so, so this brings us to the moment on the, the uh, moon bus. Yep. And again, another ominous mood setting score. Yep. Uh, Lux Eterna, uh, composed by the same person who did uh, Requiem. Mm. Uh, you know, this building sort of like, and it's, it's, it's a little more soothing. It's a little more alien-like. Uh, whereas the other two uh, scores that we heard, not including uh, the, the opening one, uh, it, they're, they're almost like unsettling. This one sort of like uh, Lux Eterna, it, it, I, I like the way it, it just sort of depicts an alien landscape as you see the moon bus flying acro- across the surface of the moon. Right. And uh, that's when you find this very interesting fact about the monolith, that it was deliberately buried four million years ago. Right. And that four million years ago was right after that moment it implanted the consciousness into the man apes. I think that's the assumption. I think we have I don't think we can know that, but I think we you have to assume that. Yeah. Is that they they said, okay, they're ready there. Let's plant this. They're gonna find this four million years. Okay, now. and and that brings us to the point. What made two thousand one the year, not not the film, what made that moment I'm jumping way ahead, but what made that moment the right moment to advance humanity's step of evolution again? Mm. And okay, the monolith four million years ago had this implanted intelligence into the man apes. It disappeared, was buried on the moon. If humanity is evolved enough to uncover the monolith on the moon. Yeah. If humanity has the technology and the intelligence to follow its transmission to Jupiter, yeah. then it will be worthy of the next step of its evolution. Right. Good point. Yeah. It is literally just a very simple through line that, that goes you go from the monolith on, on Earth four million years ago to the monolith on the moon. Okay, we found this, we've achieved space travel. Okay, now we're going to follow the beam to the moon, to Jupiter, and that's like, okay, you win. Follow me. That's yeah. that's it. That's no, I really agree. it. I agree. That's exactly what what I think of it. Too. Like 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 the the intelligence behind the monolith is not going to come back to Earth and do what it did four million years ago. It's like no, you passed you passed one test. You were smart enough to use the bone as a weapon, right? Or for or for your survival, yep. so you could keep going. The next test will be if you can get to Jupiter and pass all these tests, then you are worthy of evolving. Well, this is what, what's interesting. I think there's a chicken and the egg that's hard to decipher, which is, is it the human coming up with the thing that leads the monolith to give us the next thing? Or is it the monolith giving the human the idea to come up with the thing? Well, And I think it's a little of both, because I think what you say is that he... 
he doesn't think of using the bone as a tool until after his experience with the monolith in the first one. Right. But we can't get to the monolith until we learn enough to go to the moon, and we can't get to the monolith outside of Jupiter until we know enough to do that. Right. So there's a different... And, and again, this is... Is that I? By the way, I completely agree with your interpretation of this idea of the connection with evolution and the monolith sort of waiting for us and sending us in this certain direction. What's weird about this movie is there is still an unknowable element of like, what are the intentions here? And and where I go to, this is yep. sort of where my theory is, is that I kind of at the end go, this is a movie, and it's what it really is is Kubrick is talking to us. Mm -hmm. That's the real. There's no monolith, you know. Yeah, this yeah. is a metaphor. We're into metaphorical space. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's really where the the juicy stuff is. Mm -hmm. Well, well. So, so when now all the astronauts or the scientists that are on the moon bus, we see we see it land, of course, because we have to see everything yeah, land. <laughs> now, so when the scientists make their way over to the buried monolith, which has been excavated. Yeah. around it so they can walk down and get close to it they are all it's wearing a huge set by the way yeah huge they are up. all wearing spacesuits yeah right. they all look exactly alike just like the apes uh, well the apes wouldn't say that <laughs> <laughs> i mean you say they all look alike <laughs> they all look the same. but the apes you know, for better, you know, if you if you get up close to them, yeah, they look different. But from a distance, they all look the same. Sure, that's a fair and point. And from a distance, yep. the astronauts, the scientists in their matching silver spacesuits all look the same. And as they slowly make their way down the platform to get close to the monolith, mm. just like that moment four million years ago where a man-ape had the courage to reach out and touch the monolith and feel it up and down. You see Haywood Floyd in his spacesuit do the same uh, motion yes. in the exact same time frame yes. of looking at it and reaching out. And there, there's even a close up on his hand caressing the monolith. Yep. Uh, uh, probably the least uh, subtle moment that you'll find in a Kubrick film to accentuate that he is doing. The same exact motion in the same exact way that the apes did four million years ago. So again, technology has advanced. All that stuff is great, but not much has really changed. Well, and the 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 distance between the technology of the apes and the whatever the hell the monolith is, yeah. and the distance between the technology of the human astronauts and whatever the hell the monolith is, is still extreme. You know what I mean? It's like the apes might have been. 1500 miles away from that and the humans are now 1400 miles away from that yeah. you know what i mean like you still get the sense this this monolith is way beyond them yeah just one thing on the filmmaking thing is that um throughout this whole film we've really been in static shots and a few dolly shots uh and these shots in the spaceships with you know the gimbals and rotating cameras and things but everything's moved really slow and really smoothly mm -hmm. as we go down into the excavation pit we're suddenly in handheld camera shots totally different oh, look yeah. and who's hand holding the camera stanley kubrick huh. and it's and it just i think part of it is the contrast with everything we've been before to suddenly be in, in this handheld it has a lot of tension and a lot of you know chaos to it and we're not going to see handheld again until much later in the movie and you're, of course now you are hearing the score for requiem again yep. yeah and the the timing of the score as as they're the scientists are making their way around the monolith 
Posing and, for pictures. And... Yes, posing for pictures. And just as they are posing for pictures, for the first time in four million years, sunlight hits the monolith. Yes. Sunlight oh. hits the monolith. That is what causes the monolith to send a radio beam to Jupiter to alert its makers that humanity has achieved the capacity for space travel. That's what's going on there. Wow. For the first, I, I never understood why that moment for the monolith to, to pitch this beam. Okay, well, the sun, the sun is the sunlight is hitting the monolith for the first time. That could only have happened if somebody dug it up. It's if funny, somebody I, dug it, it up, then they're going to be smart enough maybe to get to Jupiter. I never thought it was the sun hitting it for the first time because I don't think I know that the sun is hitting it for the first time. You don't. I think it was them touching it for the first time. I think it was the contact. Okay, I thought but, but, that too. But it could be either. We, we, well, we that's don't know. true. That's but I definitely, but I definitely think you're, that yes, it is said. Okay, it's time they've achieved space travel, right. and then we get this title: Jupiter mission. Eighteen months later. Eighteen months, and now you're in the year two thousand one, and the protagonist completely changes. Yep. Yes, like, it is. Play, and, and, is and by the way, one thing we should say is this is fifty-five minutes into the film. Yeah. And we're suddenly switching protagonists. We've had minimal dialogue. Mm-hmm. We've had minimal character development. There's no character conflict, really, that yeah. we could talk about. Like, there's a lot of tension and a lot of thought and design. That's This is unlike any other movie we've this, ever talked this, about. This spacecraft, the, US, the, the SS Discovery, yeah. uh, is nothing like any, any science fiction spacecraft we've ever seen. Yeah, this one is absolutely practical, and it looks a lot like a sperm. Yep. Yeah, it is shaped we'll, like a sperm, which will come into play later on. Yes, it will. We get into the. But, we'll get into it. Yeah. No. <laughs> you, sorry. So we move inside the spaceship. We're inside the spaceship, and, we and it is they're they're bored to tears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, you know, we need to get some exercise. Let's take a little run I around. Love running. It is amazing. Yeah. And of course, first of all, this is Gary Lockwood. Yes. And what was he doing like a year after this? Uh, he was doing the, the second pilot for Star Trek, second, yeah. where no man's gone before. He oh. was uh, Gary Mitchell. He's Gary Mitchell? He's yep. Gary Mitchell. Crazy Gary Mitchell? He's Gary Mitchell with the silver eye. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. We're, you know, you like what you Mitchell. see? Absolute power corrupting. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. I, crossing the stream. I, we're, we're, we don't want, I'm going to go down the path. I love that episode. I do too. I, I it's one of my it's favorites. Still, it's, not, it's not just a great pilot. It's one of the best episodes of the series. Yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway. So so he's running around. And what we had to say, you know, we talked about this idea of a set on a gimbal. This is, as far as I know, the biggest set on a gimbal ever made. That's correct. They called it the Ferris wheel. And makes sense. what's happening in this is that the the camera is attached to the set. This huge wheel is rotating around, and he is running. He's essentially running in place as this huge set rotates around him. And then they have one where the camera appears to be moving behind him. Yeah. So what's happening is he is either, when it's behind him, he's running slightly uphill, I think. No, he's no. when it's behind him, he's running slightly downhill. Right. And the camera is now not attached to the set and is rotating through the set with him. And then but the other one where it's, he's, he's running slightly uphill. And again, the camera is not attached to the set. And these are extremely, extremely difficult shots to do. Yeah. And it is so cool. I, I always thought, it, um, not always, I guess, but it, it, is, it has occurred to me as I've watched it over and over again that 
this moment, we are the gerbil in the wheel for God. Totally. And we are running around this thing in slow motion. Yep. And I was like, that's 18 months on this mission to get to where we're going. And that's what we are. For, for the extraterrestrials or for God, we are this ham, uh, hamster in the wheel. Well, and the other thing watching the hamster in the wheel yeah. is the red eye of Hal. Hal. Oh, Hal man. 9000 voiced by Canadian actor Douglas Rain. If you are a voiceover artist, Hal is what you strive to achieve because it is an iconic voice. People, there's maybe five people that could tell you what he looks like nowadays, and it is phenomenal. A phenomenal performance. It is a phenomenal performance. It is also the only character in the film that you feel any sort of empathy for. Interesting. It is a, interesting. A, an artificial intelligence. Mm. I, I would say certainly the most empathy. I mean, by yeah. by far. I mean, I have a little empathy for Moonwatcher. I have a little empathy for Dave. Bowman, yeah. Sure, Dave. You know, but no, Hal's the most compelling. And what it's, I mean, you might have already known this, but I didn't know this until uh, yesterday, is that uh, Dennis, Dennis Ray, no. Uh, Douglas Rain. Douglas Rain. Mm. He worked for one day, nine hours. I know that. Nine hours doing voiceover. Holy crap. And the other That's what you want. Isn't that crazy? What day? And the other thing. So originally Kubrick thought it was going to be a woman named Athena. That was the original name. And then the first actor he was thinking about was Martin Balsam. Oh, great voice. Great voice. Not what Hal is. Yeah. And then what's really funny is, of course, when you're on the set, that guy's not on the set. So you have to someone. So you just pick someone to read it. And so he had his AD read it, who I have his name somewhere in my notes, but I don't know where they are. Yeah. But but apparently um, uh, Gary Lockwood described his accent as Michael Caine. So they had <laughs> Michael Caine to do all their dialogue. What with. you doing there, Dave? <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave. I can't do that. This conversation serves <laughs> nope. no purpose. And um, and then and so so we see this shot of Hal's eye, and we see a reflection like a rotating person, uh, which I think is Dave yeah. coming out. And then Dave climbs down a ladder, and we see uh, Frank, which is Gary Lockwood, who is sitting eating his meal. Yeah. And Dave is above him on the other side of the wheel. And then Dave walks around the wheel down to join Frank, where he's having. So how dinner. do they keep Gary Lockwood in place? So this is like this is where, like thinking about how they did what they did is amazing because yeah. of course we're on a Ferris wheel, and that when when um, Dave climbs down the ladder to the yeah. base of the Ferris wheel, that means that Frank is hanging upside down from the ceiling eating. S- Eating strapped in, which was a food is falling, and of course, you, one little bit of food gets on the set. You got to shut down for a couple hours, right. and B like food's going up his nose, and I mean this is, and he's hanging up there for hours trying to get this shot right. Yeah. That is crazy. But this is also where you see Frank and Dave; they are watching the news. Yep, mm-hmm. they are watching a news report about themselves. We spoke with Mission Commander Dr. David Bowman and his deputy. Dr. Frank Poole. Well, good afternoon, gentlemen. How's everything going? Marvelous. Have no... <laughs> we have no complaints. And it's it's actually a pretty brilliant way to establish who they are, what the mission is. And how without, long they've been on this mission. And how and how they really don't have to say anything because right. they're just sitting there eating. So so they're listening to this BBC phone call. And we should say that, uh, that Dave is Carrie Dulea. Um, and these aren't like big actors or anything. And they're watching themselves in this BBC interview. And they talk about that, you know, they're 
five people, men on board, three of them are in suspended animation and that that's to save, you know, life support stuff. And that, of course, the sixth member of the crew is the HAL 9000. We next spoke with the HAL 9000 computer, whom we learned one addresses as HAL. Good afternoon, HAL. How's everything going? Good afternoon, Mr. Amer. Everything is going extremely well. And they talk about the fact that HAL has feelings. Yep. And HAL is like sentient. Yeah. Well, and, and well, then and then hold on. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. About that. He's getting he's getting to that point. <laughs> well, I just don't. I mean, like, like uh, he appears sentient, but this is one of the themes of the movie. Is like, uh, is is that what is the nature? If you can talk to a computer and he can talk back to you and sound like one of us, does that mean that he's sentient? Interesting. We're going to have a we're going to have a nice debate on this one throughout well, the rest well, of the well, movie. Well, this is. I mean, so okay. so so, and what we had to go to is yeah. we had to go to the Turing test. And the Turing test is Alan Turing, who we just had a yeah. movie about, one of the founders of computer science. And he came up with this idea that at some point you could be having a conversation. It could be like text where you're typing or you could actually be talking to a voice. And that at the point at which 30% of us would be fooled by that computer into thinking it is human, that that computer has passed the Turing test. And we are right, by the way, right now at this moment, we are just about to pass it. And, and people have said this is a regular test that people have set up and people have built whole computer systems and software systems to try to beat the Turing test. And we're right at that 30 percent wow. moment. But the question but but no one thinks that any of these computers that are passing the Turing test are sentient. Right. You know, and, 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 and well, the problem with this discussion and why it's impossible to really resolve is that. We actually don't have a definition of what sentience or consciousness is. You know, like what, how do we know what consciousness is? Mm -hmm. Is that if someone is just saying things that sounds like they're talking, does that mean they are conscious? I, I find consciousness, I mean, it's just an opinion, but I find consciousness to be defined when you're aware of your own mortality. Yeah. If you're, if you're aware of your mortality, and humanity is the only species that is aware of its own mortality. You're well, saying my dog's not conscious? Like, like well, dogs, don't dog right dogs don't think, oh man, I better stop eating all this like good good dog food or I'm going to die, you know, die soon. How do you know? I, well, the dog will keep eating that's a good sometimes that's until a good it gets too heavy. Well, How this do you is know? Yeah, I, I, I think I actually do think animals are aware of their own mortality. But well, so so one of the definitions of consciousness is aware of your own eyeness. Is that your own identity and your own perspective on the, that I am seeing this, that this mm -hmm. is how I am interacting with the world. Um, but it's a really hard thing to figure out. I mean, there are like whole schools of philosophy debating how do we define what consciousness is? And this idea too of like at what level of life is does consciousness exist? Uh -huh. And it, you know, it's like because animals seem to have feelings they have. They certainly show fear. They show joy. They show. Does that mean that they are conscious, and or are they sentient? And what is? How do we get into that? And whether or not Hal is a sentient being is part of the key of this movie. I, and I think everything in this movie is kind of telling me, telling us that he is. Yeah. Um, and this is one of the discussions they're having. And one of the most interesting things is that they're asking. You know, they ask Frank and Dave about Hal, and then they talk to Hal and. And Hal says, The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. We are all, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. How At least you, it was. Well, how do you feel listening to this? Uh, 
Um, well, uh, that's interesting. How do I feel listening <laughs> to this? I feel like how I, I feel like Hal's a little arrogant, mm-hmm. um, and uh, again, have showing more depth as a character than Frank, Dave, Doc Haywood, Floyd, anyone we've seen so far. Well, this is so. So two things because I totally agree. so. The first thing is this is classic hubris. A character at the beginning of the play, right. according to Aristotle, says a prideful thing. Well, their pride will be destroyed. That is classic tragedy. Right. And if a human had said to you, I never make mistakes, you would go, well, you're obviously wrong. Right. That you're either lying to yourself or you're going to make a mistake. Um, and, and and so that we have this. But when Hal says it, it's kind of like, do we accept this as truth? And then the second thing you say, which I totally agree with, is when they ask Frank and Dave questions, Frank and Dave are flat? Yeah. It's really weird how not human they are. Do you believe that Hal has genuine emotions? Well, he acts like he has genuine emotions. Um, of course, he's programmed that way to make it easier for us to talk to him. But as to whether or not he has real feelings is something I don't think anyone can truthfully answer. Well, I think that's on purpose. I agree. I think he directs them to do that so that Hal stands out more. Because Hal is going to be the one that is, like you said earlier, Steve, he's going to be the compelling character now in this sequence of the film, in this section of the film. Uh, and yes, it's hubris. See, to me, he that's why I think he is sentient. And you're right, other signs seem to point that he is sentient. He understands this need to uh, show off. Humans understand that. And the need to feel secure. Humans understand that. And so... Like, if the Hal says it's never made a mistake, you can be secure. Like this tool, this tool makes you secure. Hal makes me secure. This is something we've created, another tool. It makes me secure knowing Hal will take care of everything and no mistakes will be made. Well, and one interesting thing, because we are at the dawn of AI right now. Yeah. Sorry, John. Ah! <laughs> but but it is that, I was just listening to this because I listened Fuck to- Fuck those I, robotics, Chicago people, wherever they are, creating those so dogs. Now, not only are we at the dawn of man, we're at the dawn of AI- Come, yeah. on. So, Come on. So, so I listened to a bunch of sort of geeky podcasts, and they were just talking about we have Siri and Alexa and yeah. uh, Google, whatever the Google one is. Google Assistant, yeah. Yeah, and one of the things they've discovered is that they want you to use it, right? That's the goal. Apple wants you to use Siri. And, you know, Amazon wants you to use Alexa. And that if you say, hey, I won't say the words, hey, Alala, um, you know, what's the temperature? And, and the thing comes back and says 73 degrees. That's not that interesting. Right. If, or if you say, like, should I wear a sweater today? And they come back and say, the, te- the weather today will be a high of blah, 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 and a low of this. We don't really like that much. But if it comes back and says, oh, John, it's, it, you don't need a sweater today. Mm-hmm. It has a more human answer. Right. We respond better to that, and we use the service more often. And so right now what they're doing is programming these uh, electronic assistants, which are AI, to respond to you in a way that is more human-sounding. Sure. But that doesn't mean they're sentient. Right. It means that they have been programmed to use this set of words rather than that set of words in order to make interacting feel more like you're interacting with a human. I think something is sentient when it de- when it protects itself, when it defends itself. Right? That's what I think is sentient. And I think that's what's correlative in the movie throughout. I think it has to want to defend itself. That's what I'm saying. Right, so but but the if tool I- he uses, the the bone, Hal does the same thing eventually. Right, but if I have a uh, as I do, mm-hmm. a machine gun mounted on my roof. Sure. And I have a... Oh, yeah, of course. And I have a, <laughs> a, a motion detector um, outside my house. Yeah. And the motion detector triggers the machine gun to fire when anyone comes into its range. Right. Is my house now sentient? It's nope. defending itself. Nope. No, it has to think 
about that's defending what I'm saying. itself. But that's that's it makes decisions different. to defend itself that are not programmed in terms of uh like you just said, you triple wire automatic response. Right. This is more analytical breakdown. This is what I'm going to do next. It's that very complicated. Yeah. And and of course one of the other things they ask Hal is how do you like acting you know, being with humans? Yeah. And he finds it very stimulating. <laughs> Again, Hal's voice is there's something creepy about it. Mm-hmm. It is re- well. It, I think it goes into the um, the idea of animation, animation of the uncanny valley, yeah, which it is so close to human but not quite human, and that makes it very creepy. And it's a great performance by this guy. It, it's it, great, it, absolutely. Because again, there there's there is empathy, there is feeling. He's a a, a complex character. Yes, he is in the sense that he's been given a mission, but why did he why did he make this malfunction? Well, he. This is what's not knowable, and we're we're gonna get there. Yeah. Um. We, you know, we go through space a little bit longer. Uh, Frank is sunbathing, and Hal tells him he's got a transmission, and 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 I think this is such an important moment. Is Frank says, "Oh, move me in a little closer," and it, and and Hal slides his little Betty's on, mm-hmm. and the reason I think this is so important is it really shows you like Hal controls everything on this yep. ship. They are a hundred percent dependent upon this computer. Mm-hmm. And then Frank gets this birthday message from his family. And it is a weird scene. He could care less. Yes. He's bored to tears. Yes. Well, and this is to your point of like, there's no emotion in these guys. Mm -hmm. He's just sitting there. And by the way, these are not TV screens. These are 16 millimeter rear projection because TV screens, they hadn't solved the um, scanning problem in order to sync. It's a technical thing of syncing the film rate with the scan rate on the TV monitor. Mm -hmm. And so they have rear projection of 16 millimeter shooting up at that screen to to make this work. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he's bored. You know, listen, they're, they're out in space for so long. Yeah. I mean, who can blame them? Yeah, but you would think that you're bored in space, and then you get a message from your family who you be love. Excited to hear, you would be excited, but no, it's not. Well, no, I don't know if after 18 months you'd be like, "There's a little, there's, and a, then, and then, well, there's well, then, an apathy to it." Well, then Hal says, "Yeah, happy birthday, Frank." Yes, thank you, Hal. A little lower, please. Like he, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little lower, please. Well, and one of the interesting things, well, we'll see it. And so in the next scene, Frank is playing chess against Hal. Yeah, and several there's several weird things about this scene. Uh, Rook to King One. I'm sorry, Frank. I think you missed it. Queen to Bishop Three. Bishop takes Queen. Knight takes Bishop. Mate. Uh. Yeah, it looks like you're right. I resign. So, um, uh, in the chess game, uh, day or Frank unsurprisingly loses the match. But here's it is. I'm not a chess guy, but yeah. apparently chess people have said that there is a mistake in what Hal says on how he beat him. And the thing that's interesting about this is that Kubrick was a fantastic chess player. Right. As Are a young, you surprised to hear that? As a young man, he used to hustle chess. That's how he made money. Wow. He would go to the park and make bets with people, and they saw this young kid, and he would just wipe them out. And so there's two possibilities, is that either A, Kubrick made a mistake in, in how he laid out this chess game. Mm-hmm. And, and look, I am against the idea of Kubrick as the uber genius who plans everything and makes no mistakes. That's not true. But, or it's possible that Hal is already malfunctioning in the chess game when he makes a mistake. Huh. Oh, okay. Um, Frank just didn't pick up on Yeah, exactly. Oh, interesting. Interesting. The way that they talk to Hal is very flat. Yeah. And it's like they are talking to him like they're talking to a person. 
but with no emotion. Do you know what I mean? Like they're, it's like to me, it feels like they're going through the motions of talking to Hal like Hal is sentient, mm-hmm. but maybe they don't. I don't know what they feel. It's very weird. Yeah, it's a good point. I I think they speak to Hal in that way because Hal is a computer, so they don't have to spend the time with interaction. Yeah. yeah. It's very, to them, even though Hal has, in a way, progressed past them, they think, because they've created it, they have to speak to it in a way that's like what, you, what people used to make fun of in the old days, those jokes where you're yelling to the person who's a foreigner. Right. Like I'm telling you to go, and it's as if like, they're somehow deaf. Yeah, as if so they're, they're going to understand you better if you yell. It's that kind of thing. But, but they do still reverse. say, they do still say, yeah. like, please and thank you. Well, yeah, but they but they don't have a feeling of gratitude no. or. Do you um, think they're? Do you think they know? Like, that's what I wonder, and I want to ask you both this. They've been 18 months. All right, this shit with how that's about to go down throughout the rest of the sequence of this section of the movie. Do you think they've had any suspicions because of how they're talking to Hal that Hal has this ability to hurt them? I think that is a great question. It's a great question. What do you think, Scott? Uh, I I don't think layup, so layup. because I don't think yeah, based on based on a decision they were going to make oh. that they never got a chance to do until Dave did it on his own. Yeah. Uh I don't think that that either one of them ever thought or worried that Hal might turn on them or that there might be something wrong. I, okay. Why would they put themselves so far out to deep space if they and, – and put and, ha, and, and surrender their, themselves mm-hmm. to a computer that might malfunction or, or a computer that might turn on them? Okay. But the unease that – the conversation that they have is unsettling. Yes. Because Hal sounds nervous. <laughs> so So – Here's my answer to your question. Okay. Is that for my answer, I have to go back. So Haywood Floyd, he comes onto the space station. He exchanges pleasantries with people, but there's no real connection. Yeah. He talks to his daughter about her birthday and there's no real connection. Right. Then he has a completely fake conversation with these Russian scientists who he does seem to have a past relationship with. And yet in that conversation, he gives no actual personal contact with them. Then he makes a speech in this meeting to these people where he says, I sympathize with your negative views and yet has no real human sympathy with them at all. Right. And then we get onto the spaceship where these two people are completely disconnected. This is interesting. And I think this is a movie about the future of that. The men have become machines that we, that we have. Absolutely. Yes. We have in order to go, do this that that the world of Frank and Dave is so formalized yeah. that there isn't the rule. Everyone's behaving correctly, mm-hmm. and no one is being human. And I think in a dentist, what we just said, maybe Haywood uh, programmed these machines like Hal, because you find out sure. later that when as Hal is dying, that Hal says he was programmed in the same plant where the first IBM computer was ever created, and so. I wonder if Floyd has a thing where it's portrayed this way. So you speak to it this way because it's pleasantries, but no real connection. So, by the way, a whole bunch of people say this isn't true, but it is interesting that Hal, H-A-L, is one letter away from I-B-M. Oh, (laughs) boom. Wow. Boom. Um, So this chess game... Not well, <laughs> but everyone who worked on the movie, including Arthur C. Clarke, says no, that has nothing. The, we did, we oh, didn't do bullshit. No, he says go with the it. Plant. That is a great, that is a great. Um, he says theory. the plant when he's dying. All right, ne- in the next scene, 
Dave is doing some drawings. Hal seems very interested in these drawings. <laughs> Bring it a little closer. And again, here is this completely false surface conversation yeah. with all the human connection taken out of, oh, your drawings are very good. I think you've improved. But at that moment, at that moment, the conversation shifts. Yes. And becomes a genuine conversation initiated by Hal. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. Well, forgive me for being so inquisitive. But during the past few weeks, I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. Now, Hal knows what the mission is, but he was not instructed to discuss the true mission with the crew. Right. So that, at least this is what we found out in 2010, was, you know... A computer was instructed to lie, and that's why he malfunctioned. Well, and this is the thing. This is where – because a long time ago, I read 2001. The, the, I haven't, it was a long time. Yeah. I don't remember. And, of course, I didn't like it as much. And part of what I don't like it as much, and this is why my understanding is that Kubrick didn't really like it, is it explains stuff. Mm. Is, that, is that the knowledge of that makes this movie less mysterious. You know, that's that. true. Right. You know, yes, of but, course. But that is certainly one of the main theories. And it's interesting the way Hal talks in this scene because he says things like, It's rather difficult to define. Perhaps I'm just projecting my own concern about it. I know I've never completely freed myself of the suspicion that there are some extremely odd things about this mission. I'm sure you'll agree there's some truth in what I say. And these are all very human, conscious ways of speaking. Yeah. But he also says it in the flat howl tone, and so everything feels a little bit off. And then you see Dave being cagey about it. Well, I don't know. That's a rather difficult question to answer. You don't mind talking about it, do you, Dave? No, not at all. Well, certainly no one could have been unaware of the very strange stories floating around before we left. Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. I never gave these stories much credence, but particularly in view of some of the other things that have happened, I find them difficult to put out of my mind. For instance, the way all our preparations were kept under such tight security, and the melodramatic touch of putting doctors Hunter, Kimball, and Kaminsky aboard already in hibernation after four months of separate training on their own. And then there's a pause, and then Dave says... No, wait, before that. And Dave says, you're working up your crew psychology report. Yes. And then Hal kind of goes, yeah, you got me. Yeah. Was he working up his crew psychology report? Why the pause? Like, why the pause from, from Hal's response? Well, well, no, Dave, Dave pauses sort of for a moment. I think they're both questioning each other of what the other one knows and what the other one doesn't they're sizing each other up yeah yeah. and then to he does the left turn oh i'm sorry a moment just a moment just a moment okay well hold on hold on i i want to get there no but we're already there though no but i i have but i what do you want from this other moment (laughs) (laughs) i'm trying to find out what you want well because 
so there's two possibilities. So particularly we're assuming that Hal is a sentient being. Yeah. One possibility is that Hal is actually genuinely concerned about why they launched on this mission uh-huh. and wants to and cares about what Dave thinks. And that is why he's asking him these questions. Okay. But he also says, You're working on your crew psychology report. And Hal right. goes, Yes, I am. Right. Which also which means that Hal at some occasional sometimes does a crew psychology report sure. where he interviews the crew members in some ways to find out their emotional and psychological state. Right. So my question is, was this questioning about how we left yes. part of the crew psychology report, in which case Hal is not concerned about how they left right. and doesn't have an emotional state about this stuff? Right. Or does Hal actually have concerns because he says this seems sort of weird. I don't know how to describe it. Mm-hmm. So in other words, are we hearing actual emotions from Hal or are all the emotions a bullshit way of getting to into Dave's psychology? That is my mm. question. But at that moment, there's someone they're sizing each other up. John, you just pointed out the timing yeah. of when Hal fabricated the malfunction in the AE-35 unit. Right. I think he. I think he's doing more than just... The report. Yeah, I, I I think he's sizing them up and he's lying about the report. He's saying you got me because it's perfect cover, and then deflects, as a human being or a sentient thing would when it's caught. And by the way, there is a pause when yeah. Dave says you're preparing your crew psychology report. There is a pause before yeah. Hal answers. Yes, like he doesn't know how to answer the question. Right, and he's analyzing how should I answer the question so the human asking me. And we'll then feel the distraction. Okay. Yeah. Then, then the, the big okay. distraction. Hold on, I have to. I have to interrupt though, because this is the. It's you just are caught good. up in this moment. Well, this is the. This is like the most one of the most important moments of the film. This yeah. is the fulcrum moment it for is. you. I, I think it definitely is. So you said he he fakes the report on the failure of the piece of equipment. Yes, it could be he makes a mistake. We don't know that he's faking this. Got See, you. this is the thing: is that. Let's say that the mistake in the chess, mm. he doesn't know about. He's He could be failing. And let's say in this moment, in this conversation before, yeah. he, this conversation is fucking him, is fucking up his logic boards on right. some level. Right. And so that causes a malfunction in the sensory things mm-hmm. that causes that, because this is one of the key things is, is how wrong or is how lying mm-hmm. or does and, and then because the next thing that's going to happen later on is the threat to Hal's life comes either because he did he lie and get caught in a lie or yeah. did he make a mistake and now he's flawed and I don't think we can know the answer to this question but well I, I think if you look at what Hal does to the crew in hibernation I think this is I, I always I always yeah. thought that this was a deliberate deliberate move on Hal's part because of of the way he I always thought that he deliberately messed up the AE 3035 unit to well wait, wait a minute okay now hang on now now oh man all right, my mind is really. I blown. thought you'd figured it out. I was told at the beginning of this podcast that you'd figured out this whole. Well, movie. I figured out the whole like you know <laughs> the theme, the theme, the, theme the about. progression of the evolution. But but the detail about about like was how did Hal just mess up or was Hal being manipulative of the situation? I think he's being manipulative because I think he knows the humans are 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 uh, delaying the mission. 
The humans, because the humans have to well, breathe. Humans, delay the humans, mission. because Hal could do it himself way quicker than these people. But if they need to sleep, they need to breathe, they need to all this bullshit that he doesn't need to do, and so he, he has need, to. He, he, in the end, he, he decides to he does like after they're they're, it's, they're useless to him. Okay. Uh, first of all, you want to answer the question? That's my answer to the question. First of all, of course, of course, they're useless to him. Yes, but but Hal doesn't decide to kill them. Spoiler alert: that until <laughs> after he reads their lips. Right. I don't think Hal has any intention right. of killing because them. because he doesn't have to. They're in hibernation. He, they're, right. they're irrelevant the, the, to him. To at me, this the point. act of no killing threat. them, the act of killing them, is yeah. self defense. You know, right? That's why he kills them because he sees that they're about to kill him. And he's got a mission to do. Well, but he doesn't – but then the other issues, and this goes into what is the nature of sentience, yeah. is how actually having emotions or is he not having emotions is that does he have pride? And is the pride – because if it's pride, the pride is – because the, the how back on Earth yeah. – we're, we're jumping a little of the timeline here. But the how back on Earth says there is no fal- malfunction in this device, right. and therefore he's made a mistake. It is it his shame around making a mistake that is leading him to make these bad choices, or is he a computer that's malfunctioning? And and a computer that, by the Why way, you it's tell not – us your answer. Um, I don't know. No, I really don't know. Well, you can't ask us a question and then not have a fucking answer. Yeah, That's yeah. not right. You're putting this on us? Yeah, this is the cinephile. No, no. Cine questioners. Answer the question. I have pointed out many different <laughs> well, Hal, possibilities. Well, what's the answer, Hal? I don't well, know. Well, 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 I said I don't know if Hal's sentient. That's also, well, I, I don't know. you got to make a decision guys. There. No, I don't. Guys, the, you know, Hal's, Hal's motive to, to, uh, to, to kill the astronauts. Yeah. Is is after he reads their lips and they're going to shut right. him down, right? So let's but, let, but but then why why is Hal Mal like like what's he doing now? Is he is he malfunctioning or is he just is he is, he is it a deliberate malfunction or is he is it is it is he just did he just make a mistake? Well, because if he's lying, it's a bad plan. Because if he's there, you know, because we mm-hmm. he says there's a malfunction in the A thirty five unit, a hundred percent failure in seventy two hours, and he says that seventy two hours figure is completely reliable. Well, this is a terrible lie yeah. because this is obviously something that we can prove is not going to happen. And Hal is really smart, so it seems like a strange lie. But what we decide is yes, we're going to go out. The only thing we can do is mm-hmm. is go replace it, and so now we go out to um, uh, let's go to work. And so as Dave prepares to leave the safety of the discovery in the pod, we have reached the end of part one of our exploration of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. As always, you can visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. You can buy 2001 and every other movie we've ever reviewed at cinephiles.net. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and on YouTube. If you're on iTunes, leave a review. If you're on YouTube, leave a comment. If you want to suggest a movie that we do or support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And as always, you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris. You can reach John on Twitter and on Instagram at the Roca says, and you can reach our special guest, Scott Mance at movie Mance. And I think that's it for this week. We'll be back next week for part two of 2001, a space odyssey.